this episode of Cinema 60, Jenna and Bart discuss the musicals of 1964 and examine why this was such an important transitional year for the genre. So, Jenna and I wanted to talk about musicals uh, because we're both big fans of the genre. But there's just so much good stuff to talk about in the 60s. So we're having a little trouble focusing in on what we specifically wanted to say about musicals. But then, you know, doing some research, we noticed that, hey, look at this year, 1964, and how many amazing musicals came out that year, and how many different types of musicals. Yeah, it was funny, because we had chosen 64, and Bart picked a, a pretty good list of stuff for us to initially check out. And as I was watching them, I started to realize that this seems like this was the year that musicals changed. <laughs> I mean, it, sort of yes and no, not really. But it, it's an interesting year because you really have this uh, two ends of the spectrum. You have My Fair Lady. You have this sort of 1950s style musical. This is 1950s cinema style musical, mm-hmm. uh, which is a 50s musical anyhow. And then you have, in, in the heyday of musicals, quite frankly, in my opinion, this is this is it. Like These are the, the, the best years of musicals. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have A Hard Day's Night, which came out. And that could be the furthest thing from a a musical, and yet it is a musical. But then that's also sort of a vision of what's to come for not only musicals, but even cinema and especially television, uh, all of which seems to have changed in the wake of A Hard Day's Night. So we've got a program organized for you tonight that should make a, a nice case for how musicals changed in the 60s based on just this single year in 1964. Right. So we're going to I'm we're going to I'm going to spoil this episode for you. Not that it's a spoiler. All of this is listed online, but we're going to go in order essentially of the most traditional musical and traditional meaning filmed stage musical all the way down to again a hard day's night which is really embracing cinema. I think that's kind of the the main thing, not even just the styles of music, which which of course are going to change as we go along on this scale anyhow, but also just having filmmakers that actually embrace the fact that they're making a movie as opposed to just filming a musical. But I also wanted to just throw out there for point of reference, uh, this year 1964 has also included several other movies that we've talked about so far on this podcast, Goldfinger, Dr. Strangelove, Band of Outsiders, Fistful of Dollars. So these these movies we're about to talk about all all came out the same year as those four movies. Jeez, what a year. Yeah. A lot of important movies for me this year. I mean, three of the movies we're going to talk about today are perfection as far as I'm concerned. Like, extremely important movies in my life. So uh, hopefully I can do them some justice. It's pr- it's funny because we when we started to come up with the idea of this podcast, we both agreed that we weren't going to do like overly reverential episodes about how much we adore and uh, the cinema kind of stuff. But I feel like this is our episode for that. Except we do some real crap this episode too, though. So that'll balance it out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to start with My Fair Lady. If they can do without you, ducky, how can I? I shall not feel alone without you. I can stand on my own without you. So go 
Uh, this is, you know, Lerner and Lowe, classical uh, composers, directed by George Cukor, and has a movie uh, poster illustration by Bob Peake, who is a wonderful 60s illustrator who did a lot of movie posters, classic, like, you know, Google Bob Peake if you don't know him, but every every single classic poster, I feel like, is a Bob Peake poster. Oh, so that, that pink and white poster is, is his, the hand-drawn one? Yep. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, and I mean, My Fair Lady. This is this again is is uh, it's a, as classical as you can get. In in many ways, it was a smash hit when it came out. That they waited so long to make it a movie is almost interesting. Uh, <laughs> I feel like nowadays it would never happen. I mean, like actually, well, never mind. You know, I guess Hamilton still retains its rights. But you know, I feel like there's no need to go into the plot really of My Fair Lady. It's based on Pygmalion. It's uh you know a woman, a, a Cockney woman who gets picked up by a uh, scholar of phonetics, Professor Henry Higgins. And he teaches uh, Eliza Doolittle how to speak like a lady. He makes a pact with his friend that he can get her, he can fool high society into thinking that she is some sort of visiting queen. And so there's a lot of angst where he berates her (laughs) for a very long time and then, you know, whips her into a a fine lady. And then she now has a crisis of identity and Mm -hmm. has to figure out how to deal with it. I, I mean, I would go ahead and say that as far as, I mean, I have plenty of criticism for this musical, but <laughs> as far as music and plot, this to me is just like a perfect, it is a perfect musical, which is something it's been called. And, and it is, it's just, there's every single song is good or at least extremely catchy. It moves the plot along pretty well. There's very few moments I thought in this that, that felt like they were pointless. I mean, it's, it's, it's really fun. I don't know that it's, I, I wouldn't call it a great love story, but it's, it's really great. <laughs> yeah. I have a problem with the choreography in this movie. The numbers are not very excitingly staged. Uh, and I was really noticing it this time through. I mean, I guess that's what happens when you get George Cukor to direct a musical. He's a director who's known for his, his women's pictures and you know, very dramatic, melodramatic movies, you know, including uh, Camille, uh, Philadelphia Story, The Women. And I think that he he understands the drama of the story really, really well, but not how to direct exciting numbers. The music, you're right, is terrific all the way through. Even, you know, Rex Harrison talks singing most of his songs. Uh, They still somehow get lodged in your head. Rex Harrison... Uh, he actually insisted, uh, I read, I read about this. I did my, my homework for this, uh, episode a little bit because there was a, there was a couple of things about my fair lady that I didn't actually know and ended up being really relevant, especially as we move on to the next one that we is in our list here. But, um, I agree with you. The, the staging of this feels, it feels very stodgy and old. It really feels like you are, you're sitting in an audience and you know, you're watching a play. There's really rarely a moment where you feel like that you're in a movie. It just feels like, I mean, it's well shot in the sense that it doesn't feel like you're watching some kind of amateur production, but it really has, there's a a very clear sense of the stage and you're on the other side of of it. There's never really a moment where you feel really in the musical and in with there with the characters. But weirdly, and and I was, because I I noticed this too, and and it did feel very stodgy and, and a little stuffy in that sense, but Rex Harrison 
insisted on doing his music live when they were shooting, which was unheard of at the time, which of course, even Audrey Hepburn, who's Eliza Doolittle in this movie, is actually not singing for this. And, and that's Marnie Nixon's voice that we hear. But Rex Harrison, who was in the original play, he insisted on doing it live because he said that there was never a time when he would say the same thing twice. <laughs> I didn't realize it was recorded live, but I can totally understand why he he made that decision because to lip sync along with the, the way that he talks sings would be very, very difficult. And so this was the first use of wireless microphones, apparently, and they, they won an Oscar for that because of Rex Harrison insisting on it. <laughs> wow. But, but other than that, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot that is not terribly innovative about the camera work here. And it's um, part of the problem is it's so studio bound. Like there's at no point do you feel like you're out in the real world. And I think that that adds to the staginess of it. I mean, the costumes are incredible. The, The sets are really well dressed, but it never feels like life for a second. I mean, it's not like the 50s musicals that we all love, Singing in the Rain or The Bandwagon. All, all of these are, are very studio bound, but they're you know the choreography is really elaborate, and it, it just feels like you know it's more you're more transported into another world where people are singing and dancing, and and it sort of makes sense that they're that it's all in a studio. But this movie, especially since we're in the 60s, and and there was a lot more you know location shooting at the time, it just feels like you know it's a it's a little outdated. The, like at the, at this point in in Hollywood history, a musical shouldn't look this stage bound. See, like Singing in the Rain for me, I love Singing in the Rain. That's like another perfect movie and a perfect musical. But I've never really, even with the wonderful choreography, it certainly keeps it going, but it's never not felt like it was on a stage for me. I mean, like another movie that came out this year was Unsinkable Molly Brown with Debbie Reynolds, which uh, I don't really like whatsoever, I got to admit. It's so cheesy and there's a lot of dancing in it and there's too much dancing in it to the point where, I mean, it was just like enough with the freaking dancing. Like it didn't move the story along. It it reminds me of Tina Fey. (laughs) I feel like she based most of her comedy around characters like Debbie Reynolds' unsinkable Molly Brown, this sort of like this scrappy can do woman, you know, like that sort of just ridiculousness. But I don't mind when things look like they're they're on a stage like this. But I agree that by 64, it was getting a little old. You also mentioned that the songs all move the story along and nothing seems you know out of place. But Alfred Doolittle, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, can't, okay. warm, I can't warm up to that character at all. I mean, the uh, <laughs> with a little bit of luck is a really catchy tune. And it's sort of, you know, I guess it's sort of important that he's... Uh, so Eliza's father finds out that she is kind of a kept woman and takes, uh, you know, sees this as an opportunity to make a little bit of money, you know, giving Henry Higgins his blessing to to keep his daughter for uh, all for the low, low price of five pounds. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, like uh, Alfred Doolittle is certainly he, if, if anything could have been cut and especially for the movie, I think that he his most of his songs could have been cut. Also, Audrey Hepburn, I love Audrey Hepburn. I mean, I I don't really understand this casting. I mean, she does a great job, but her accent rivals Dick Van Dyke's, I feel like. (laughs) But she's so much less charming doing that accent uh, than Dick Van Dyke is. She's... I, I really found her just so unbearably abrasive in the, in the <laughs> early part of this movie when she's doing her, her whole Cockney flower girl thing that it was, it was hard. <laughs> you but, <will>. at, 
But at the same time, that that first scene where she's she's premiered at the Ascot racetrack, she's got the accent down perfectly. But when she's doing her new small talk bit, the you know they they done her in, <laughs> except not like that. She says it with a you know with a with a with a proper uh, upper class accent. Um, I I think Audrey Hepburn nails that. She's that's that's the first point in the movie where I'm really like it's it's pure pleasure for me. That Ascot scene has amazing costumes, but it also I think that's the perfect example in this movie of of it feeling like a play. That it premieres with everyone sort of standing still as you can gaze on everyone's accent. I mean, it's literally stage direction, which which is fun and and you know enjoyable, but definitely points to this sort of older style for sure. Funny enough, like my I think my favorite part of this is old Henry Higgins and all of his horrible mean lines. There are so many good evil lines that he says in this, like cold blooded murder of the English tongue. I think about that like very often <laughs> or he calls her such just terrible names like a uh, barbarous wretch, impudent hussy, a squash cabbage mm-hmm. leaf. I'm like, bless this. This is the best film. He's horrible, though. He basically kidnaps her. Well, with her permission, right? She's the one who approaches him <laughs> and says that she she will pay him for for lessons she wants to become a lady yeah but then he's like you gotta be good for me and and like live in my he's it's almost like beauty and the beast which i guess is sort of not unsimilar yeah i never made that connection but there's a big crossover there it has a lot of beauty and the beast in there yeah no nobody nobody does snark like rex harrison maybe george sanders but uh as awfully human being as he is and so misogynistic he it really is the kind of the, the highlight of, of this movie. I definitely, like, there was definitely a moment towards the end of this movie where she finally confronts him. You know, she's won. You know, she's now a, can be a lady. She can she can leave the, the castle. It totally enraged me thinking about just how, how much this, this kind of guy still exists. <laughs> <laughs> and which is great, which is, a, which is a credit to the musical in the sense that, that not only does they, they put him on display and put him on display as a, as a total asshole, uh, then they get to call him out, even though the ending, the, that final moment is kind of a, a huge letdown. But that song that she sings at the end. Without You, that one? Yeah, Without You. That was really satisfying. And yeah, then it also was, he has yeah. that great line about how you're going to marry a man with a thick pair of lips to kiss you with and a thick <laughs> pair of boots to kick you with. And I was like, yeah. You gave him a <laughs> Scottish accent. That, that's like Connery coming through. <laughs> uh, yeah, Without You is not a great song, but it is totally satisfying when she sings that to, to Henry Higgins. I wish that it had just ended with him sitting alone in his, like, and then he sings that I've grown accustomed to your face, which, which is a, a very, I like that song, but the lyrics are so they're, they're ter- like, they're hilarious. And they're also like, it, it, it makes me always made me laugh that it got picked up as this sort of like jazz staple uh-huh. because of the fact that the lyrics are all like, like, I'm so glad that she's a woman, so easy to forget. You know, it's something like this sort of like totally dismissive and misogynistic song that, that comes across as being a romance song. But like you listen to the lyrics and you're like, wait a minute, like what the fuck? <laughs> I just wish that it had ended with him alone in, in his room listening to records and then and just like and then fading to black. <laughs> well, I think that's more like how Shaw's version of it doesn't include the romance at all, I, I think. The movie version of Pygmalion has a, ends with some romance, but Shaw's play is like, no, why would why would these two ever get together? That's ridiculous. 
And that's, you know, that's, you can't help but feeling that way watching this movie. Like, why would, I mean, not to, not to spoil the ending, but, you know, they get together in the end. This is a Hollywood musical, and it's ridiculous. It's, it's the last thing on earth you want to happen, but. And especially when they get together and then the, and then all he says is like, cause she, she shows up seeing him miserable and she is like, I wish, oh, she's like, I wash my, me face and ends. Oh, I did. <laughs> and then he just sort of like, he won't even, he's still too much of a shitty man to even express himself. And he just says like, where are my shoes? You know, like this sort of like, he, he immediately orders her to, to go do shit for him. And that's like, that's your romantic ending. <laughs> I think the I've grown accustomed to your face. It's 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 a good song, and I think it's effective in the way that it's the song itself is structured. In that he's he talk sings through most of it, and when he's doing his talk singing, it's he's doing his you know his his misogynistic like women are crazy. You can't you know how 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 could you know any man bear to live with a woman? But then when the really pretty melodic part of the song comes in, the you know the chorus, the I've grown accustomed to your face chorus, when he's actually singing. You can see him sort of softening a bit, and I, I think it's effective. And you're, I, I think you're supposed to think that that melody is is that Eliza is the melody that's kind of uh, entered his life and, and softened him a bit. So I think it's effective in that way. What's your favorite song in this one? We definitely have to choose all of our favorite <laughs> songs for all of these musicals. It's, I mean, I could have danced all night. It's is too hard to resist. You know, just the just the, the sweetest melody in the in the show. But I don't think the staging of it is very exciting. It's sung when she finally loses her her Cockney accent, and uh, you know she uh, she just dances with Henry Higgins and Colonel Pickering for a little bit, and then you know goes goes upstairs and gets gets dressed and there's you know it's not there's nothing very interesting about the staging of that song but it's it's beautiful i love it actually um you did it is my favorite number and that's not a particularly good song but it's really dramatically staged where uh, eliza has her success at the the ball convinces everybody that she's really a lady and uh you know they come back to henry higgins's house and uh and they they sing you did it and it's all congratulations for for Henry Higgins and and uh, and Eliza's just sort of back in the corner and and nobody acknowledges what you know that she was the one who you know really made this happen and was you know succeeded but but um, I don't know I, it's such a a painful song and it goes on gruelingly long and it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean I think that's what George Cukor is probably good at I I think that the numbers where he can he can wring the the most drama out of it are, are, are probably what he does best but well, what's your favorite song i got it like i love um on the street where you live as a song i actually love that song though i also it, it's funny i felt like that character in this didn't really he he actually felt maybe now that i said every every song is perfect and nothing is wasteful i mean the music is perfect the the character development was was mediocre and and in some ways the song could have been cut from this play and the play would have been fine but i love that song <laughs> and i guess other than that probably i've grown accustomed to her face just because yeah. it makes me laugh not uh, him to him which is that one <laughs> that's that's the one where henry higgins is just singing about uh how how wonderful being in the company of men is and that that women are awful and oh god uh, yeah actually no 
then I change it. The, the, the without you song, I think was my, was the best one in the, to watch just because I love, I love that she has that line about like a, what a, what a fool I was to think you were the earth and sky. And it's like, it's good. It's like a really, it, it, even if you were tricked into feeling that this was a romance, she, they totally undercut it and granted they then, you know, walk it back. But I, I really appreciated that. Uh, scene because that was definitely especially with the her and, and the mother and they're both like oh he's just a spoiled baby brat jerk <laughs> yeah she's like there's gonna yeah. be spring with you no matter what like whatever the world does the world keeps turning dude like get over it that's i, I think we agree then the, the two best numbers are the ones that, that have the maximum dramatic effect and aren't necessarily the best songs are actually fairly poor songs so the next movie we're going to discuss uh, is mary poppins a British bank is run with precision. A British home requires nothing less. Tradition, discipline, and rules must be the tools. Without them, disorder, chaos, moral disintegration. In short, you have a ghastly mess. I quite agree. The children must be molded. This movie, of course, w was uh, sort of uh, Julie Andrews' prize for for being passed over for the lead in My Fair Lady because she was the one who originated the Eliza Doolittle role on Broadway and did it for years and years and years but then when they went to make the movie at Warner Brothers Jack Warner decided oh well we Julie Andrews has uh isn't bankable she's never been in a movie before I don't uh you know we need we need a name in this movie so so Audrey Hepburn was chosen over her and I, I think there was uh I think Julie Andrews was pretty crushed by that. Yeah, I actually, I didn't even think about, you know, it's like, I, this is like, there's a whole drama about that. And basically, once she got passed over, uh, Disney swooped in immediately and said, we want you for Mary Poppins. And she was actually even pregnant at the time. And they said, no, no problem. We'll wait for you, which is unheard of even today. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, they, they like cast her. But when the Oscars then rolled around and both of these musicals came out the same year, which is something I, I will I will give a shout out to my friend Alyssa, who who loves Disney and was very upset that I didn't know this story. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you why I don't know this story in a second. But but when the Oscars rolled around, Andrews, of course, beat out Audrey Hepburn for Best Actress. And then she got up on stage with and in the most delightfully British way enacted her her revenge by thanking Jack Warner for making this all possible. <laughs> <laughs> when you can watch that on YouTube, it's pretty funny. And what's your, uh, why didn't you know this story? I have never seen Mary Poppins until this episode. Which is unfortunate because I, I know you don't uh, have particularly strong positive feelings about this movie, uh, which is absolutely one of my favorites as a kid. And uh, I didn't necessarily know that it was going to hold up particularly well revisiting it now, but it absolutely did. It's you know just one of the most magical things ever filmed. It deserves its reputation. It deserves its 60-year-later uh, remake. It's one of the few Disney movies where I can you know sit down and enjoy it and sort of take it apart, analyze it, and, and just see what what a fantastic job Robert Stevenson did with uh, putting putting this thing together. And just the, the performances by Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke are you know, stellar. And the music, all the songs are great. I don't know, it's just one, one of the great movies that uh, I, was, I was very pleased to find out is just as wonderful to me now as it was 35 years ago. 
Well, I'm going to piss you off and a bunch of people because I didn't understand this movie whatsoever. I mean, like there's good moments. I think the acting's pretty well done besides Dick Van Dyke's accent. But I just, I didn't, there was no plot here whatsoever. It really, to me, watching this movie, especially now for the first time in my 30s, uh, I mean, I've seen clips of this. Like I knew, I knew most of what was coming and I, I know most of the music because I'm alive, but it's so long. Also, the it felt like a showcase for special effects, which I think it was pretty much. It, this was really like the same way that, I don't know, Avatar had to be three hours long because it was groundbreaking special effects. Like that's what Mary Poppins feels like to me. It just goes on and on and on. And I just can't imagine that this is for kids because nothing even happens with the children. It's just adults acting like kids. <laughs> what about Jolly Holiday and Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious when they go into the chalk drawing? What about those? Like, what are those about? I mean, the, the, the drawing stuff is interesting in the sense that this is like the first time that this happened, right? The sort of live action and cartoon. I Not really. Well, I guess Gene Kelly did some of that. It's not even the only time this year. The, the Incredible Mr. Limpet, the Don Knotts movie where he turns into a fish, also oh, came okay. out in 1964. So um, then why have they spent so long doing that? <laughs> I don't know. I I could have if if Mary Poppins was twice as long, I, I'd be ecstatic. Isn't there a song about banking in this? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mister Banks is. Uh, I love that theme, that musical uh, refrain that keeps coming back, where he's talking about British banking and and uh, and hard work. And I think there's a lot of really good satire in that song. It just reminded me, there's an Elvis movie that he sings like a song about stocks and bonds or something <laughs> where you're also like what like what like why why and then also did you think the beginning with the women's rights thing like that to me seemed like it was digging on women's rights because she was leaving her family i mean the whole movie is so moralistic which is fine it is you know it's a disney movie in the 60s but it was interesting because i've been told of this song as being like really great and i thought that it was really sarcastic and kind of crappy like it was a fun song. It's like something that that almost came around full circle now that you watch it and you're like, yeah, women's rights. But I feel like at the time it was more of to point out that she was this absentee mother who didn't know how to parent. Yeah, it definitely doesn't, you know, politically it doesn't play very well now. I mean, she's just so active outside of the home and, and working to bring suffrage to, to women that she neglects her children. And of course, you know, a woman's place is in the home and she's, her first priority should be her children. Although there's there's a real difference between, you know, when the, when the mother is uh, is neglectful when uh, Mrs. Banks kind of shoves her kids off on Bert because Mary Poppins isn't around and nobody else can watch them and you know the the kids are just kind of amused that her mother is so distracted by this the suffragette stuff whereas when their father is neglectful of them and uh you're not listening to what they're saying and not caring about what they want in a nanny. There, there's a lot more disappointment, and I think that might be sort of a conscious effort to not uh, not condemn Mrs. Banks nearly as much as, uh, as as it's condemning Mr. Banks for his seriousness and uh, not caring about anything but money and and providing for the family and not allowing any any fun or play or or silliness or, or fantasy or imagination in the house. Which is a good message. Yeah. I mean, the movie, you say it has no plot, but the movie is about making Mr. Banks realize that his priorities are all screwed up. That's that's the whole reason Mary Poppins floats down into 17 Cherry Tree Lane is to to 
sort things out with Mr. Banks. Which feels really sinister sometimes. Yeah, she's. It's, there is something a little sinister about Mary Poppins. Have you seen the Mary Poppins trailer that's been recut as a horror trailer? No, but I can believe it. <laughs> She can she can be pretty severe, and she she brings this um, you know, chaos and disruption into this family's life, and she doesn't explain herself at all. It takes Bert, who plays kind of the the narrator role in this movie, to actually tell the characters, the children, and Mister Banks, and to explain to the audience what what it is that Mary Poppins is actually trying to achieve here. And and who the hell is Bert? Bart. Bert is the ideal human. He's who Mary Poppins believes. Uh, Every person should be like Bird. He's got his priorities straight. He's a hard worker. He's got, like, at least four jobs. But he also has never lost that sense of childhood wonder and, and magic. And he's always willing to you know, take a break to do something fun. And he's... My memory of the relationship between Bert and Mary Poppins is that they are boyfriend and girlfriend, but really there's no romance whatsoever there. It never, and I, I think that's what makes this an interesting musical in one respect, is that there's no romance in it. Bert just loves the company of Mary because he is, you know, still believes in magic and the power of the, the imagination. And uh, so, you know, they have their stroll in the park and then during Jolly Holiday, which... Probably my favorite sequence in the in the movie, where where Bert dances like a penguin and they walk uh, uh, across a river on turtle backs. And I thought maybe he was like a an ex child because he implies that she's never aged. I mean, she's a witch for sure, like uh, like a good witch, but or at least a stern witch. That never occurred to me, but that's definitely a possibility. She she was the nanny to Bert long ago, and now they've got a. Uh, platonic relationship there's there's a lot of uh, wholesome love there between the two of them so is jolly holiday your favorite song it always was as a kid i actually now i might say that feed the birds is my favorite song <laughs> really <laughs> feed the birds it's a song i hated as a kid because it's so Talking you know s- <laughs> syrupy and sentimental but it's yeah i i think it's so effective now um especially when George Banks is fired from his job because the kids don't want to deposit their, their shilling in the bank. They, they would rather give it to the bird lady. And it, it causes, through, through a series of misunderstandings, it causes a rush on the bank and Mr. Banks is fired from his job. And he goes back at, at 9 p.m. to uh, get fired by his bosses and he passes by the stairs where the the bird lady that mary poppins has sung about in the feed the bird song uh (laughs) mr banks is passing by the stairway and the and the bird lady is no longer there but there's this choral version of feed the birds that 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 pipes in and it's you know it's the most emotional moment in the in the movie for me like i i get a little weepy at that moment and (laughs) well that's that's precious I, my soul's dead, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite song? Uh, the music's catchy. I mean, like, Spoonful of Sugar is like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, it, it, it's, I can't even tell if I like these songs as much as I just know them so much because I've heard them so much. I guess maybe, like, the Chim Chimmery stuff is, is enjoyable. Though I, I really hated the Chimney Sweep dance number because it just would not end that was like it felt like a full hour but that, that so then to talk about this movie in the context of, of how we're, we're ranking films here 
definitely you can also tell there there's a little more um because it's more cartoonish and because it kind of gets into that live action cartoon stuff it definitely feels a little fresher than the staging of say you know my fair lady just on the just the mere basis that this is made up in a, a sort of cartoon world uh, cartoon england but the rest of it i thought was staged pretty traditionally even the stuff when they're in the cartoon they're just doing tap dance numbers that you would see on a stage uh, there wasn't terribly much. I mean, you get all of these sort of special effects of the way that Mary moves and her uh, pulling things out of bags and a lot of blue screen uh, effects that they use for this. So I definitely would would say that that's a step above as far as feeling like a fresher version of what could, uh, what a musical could be on film. It didn't wow me in any way, but uh, at least, you know, at least I made the effort. You just need to watch it seven or eight more times. <laughs> then you'll love it. If it was shorter, I think I would have enjoyed it a bit more. Like, there's nothing I... I didn't hate anything about this. I mean, like, I just... I, I'm a little... Maybe too old to, to feel nostalgic about it. Uh, I feel like there has to be some sort of sense of wonder that, that grips you. Not that I don't have that, but I, maybe it was just the fact that it was so saccharine. I, I get... I definitely get turned off by things that are pleading to be overly emotional to you you know what i mean like I, I that the sentimental aspect and and that sort of cloying family first message is just a little bit too much for for my rock and roll spirit man yeah but you're such a fan of musicals and i think that's you know most people think of musicals as so wholesome and saccharine and it's true so there there must be that that part of you in there somewhere <laughs> somewhere deep <laughs> what was down the inside. as a child what did you what did you latch on to? What was your, what was the musical that uh, that made you a fan of musicals? It's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's part of why I didn't see this as a kid. It was actually my mother who was prime. Well, I mean, she was alive uh, and, and a child during this time, but she was a little too old. She was like a, a, a young teenager and, and sort of was a little too old to have been brought to this movie. So she didn't. And then was also that like, like, you know, thought she was too old to to see a kids movie kind of thing, where where you're still a child but you think you're not. So she never saw it. So that's why I never grew up with this. Though I have to say that this never would have been in my wheelhouse as a child because I only strictly like things that were uh, starred animals. <laughs> <laughs> they're animals. They're cartoon animals. No, but they had to be like characters. Like if it was humans, I would not like it. For the first ten years of my life, it was like if it didn't have a talking animal that was like the main character, I had absolutely no interest. So. I guess maybe, I mean, I grew up on Disney. That's probably the truth of that. I I listened to Guys and Dolls as a kid a lot, the cassette tapes, and the and um, Phantom of the Opera was my favorite as a child. <laughs> um, so I love I love musicals. I love Disney. I, don't, I really don't have any problems with Disney. And, and Disney definitely can dip into this overly sentimental stuff. Uh, but I feel like it just has to be justified. For, for Mary Poppins... I don't know, like that, that a nuclear family comes together because a father works too much. Like, I don't, I guess I didn't, I didn't have the father that works so much that this made me feel emotional. You know what I mean? Like I didn't like, a, there's nothing that I can really latch on to here other than being intrigued by Mary Poppins as a character and liking Dick Van Dyke as a human. But I wanted a little, I think maybe if it had been a little more magical and a little more focused on her being a sort of mysterious figure and not just like, like, she she pulls all these cool tricks out and then she's just like a boring nanny at the end of the day. <laughs> no. <laughs> if this isn't magical, I don't know what is. What about that moment where Bird is singing Chim Chimmery and he's uh, he's looking up the chimney and he has that line about 
about the rooftops of London, the things half in shadow and halfway in light. It's that's like one of the most magical moments in the movie for me. It's and there's 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 so much mystery and magic just in that one line. Well, my definition of magic is Robin in the Seven Hoods. <laughs> it's not. I'm not, I'm lying. So Robin in the Seven Hoods is this Frank Sinatra produced movie here, which stars the clan, or as we call them now, the Rat Pack. With uh, So you got Sinatra, you have Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and then he brings in Bing Crosby and Peter Falk and Barbara Rush and Victor Buono. This one is definitely, <laughs> it's for people who love singing, dancing, and snappy jokes about brutal murder. And, and, and people who love uh, men who can sing and still be very masculine (laughs) yeah this is it is like this weird it's almost a satire on musicals so i guess in some ways so we can debate whether we think mary poppins is you know which end of the spectrum it is in in comparison with this because on one hand this is a, a musical made up of uh of singers and it in the you know every like all frank sinatra in these rat pack movies it was just an excuse to get all the guys together to be stuck together for a couple weeks, months, uh, and get paid (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then to just screw around, like, you know, to do whatever they felt like. But, you know, it's based obviously on Robin Hood. Uh, it's about essentially, you know, uh, Sinatra is warring with another faction of mobsters after the, the main mobster gets murdered. They has a hit put out on him and now it gets splintered into these two groups and Sinatra ends up, He's Robbo, by the way. Sinatra is <laughs> Robbo. Is that trying to uh, Italianize Robin? I think I think so. <laughs> yeah, Robbo. He's I don't. They're like killing cops left and right. They like put people in cement, and then he ends up with a bunch of money that they don't know what to do with. Do you remember how they get that money? Well, the daughter of the capo, the Tutti Capo, played by Edward G. Robinson, who's rubbed out at the beginning, his daughter pays Frank Sinatra to rub out whoever rubbed out her dad. But Frankie doesn't work that way. Robbo doesn't work that way. He doesn't... He's Yeah, he's too good for that. He doesn't kill people for money. <laughs> right, and he takes the money and he says, he hands it off and he says, just just donate this, like, get get rid of it. And it ends up getting donated to, like, an orphanage, which is where Bing Crosby comes in as like the head of the orphanage or something, right? The the director. Mm-hmm. And he notifies the papers about this good deal. So suddenly a star is born in, in that Robbo is the gangster who robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Uh, and then, it, you know, it kind of goes on from there. I it, Actually, there's a, there's some glimmers of guys and dolls in this, but not in any fun way. And it is, it's this weird in-between place where musicals were still manly, but they were also the opposite of manly. <laughs> <laughs> and it got really mixed reviews when it came out, but it did pretty decently at the box office. But it's just, it's a lazy movie, you know, like like a lot again, like these Rat Pack movies, they they just made these movies to to hang out. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to sit back and watch this movie, but it's it's not good. It's it is it's definitely sloppy. The plot doesn't really make much sense at all. And it just I feel like it jumps over big plot points just because it doesn't matter to these guys. They just 
want to hang out, and they each get a number. And you didn't mention how Dean Martin was uh, Little John. Yeah, Dean Martin's Little John. Sammy Davis Jr. is Will. Will Scarlet. Yeah. Uh, Peter Falk is is Guy Gisborne. I think Peter Falk actually steals the movie. Yeah, he he definitely outshines everybody else. And this movie, though, to to be fair to Sinatra, which I don't really need to be, quite frankly, but to be fair to Sinatra, two big things happened during the filming of this movie, and even one thing happened before. So. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so Sinatra and, and was was a big promoter for JFK, and he did a lot of campaigning for him in general. He, he rewrote High Hopes for his election in 1960. And before this movie happened, Kennedy was was gonna not not immediately before, but roughly before the the film, Kennedy was gonna go stay with him. But essentially, Robert Kennedy didn't like the idea of it because he thought because Sinatra had these very open mob ties, which most of these guys did because on the on the merit of not just the fact that they were Italian, <laughs> but the merit of the you know that that everyone who owned these clubs were mobsters. You kind of couldn't be involved in and work these this circuit without knowing these guys. But Sinatra definitely reveled in in having this these mob ties and and would uh, flaunt them. And so Robert Kennedy nixed it. JFK ended up staying with Bing Crosby, actually. And they sent Peter Lawford, who was a member of the Klan and a, a Kennedy brother-in-law, to give Sinatra this bad news. And Sinatra had been planning. He built a helipad in his backyard so that Kennedy could could come stay with him. And so this then Lawford had to go over him and, and tell him that this, you know, like, hey, it's, it's, it's not going to happen anymore. So Sinatra then banned Lawford from ever speaking to him again and, and supposedly destroyed the helipad with a sledgehammer and like threw an absolute fit. And then even in, in more of a zinger, he completely ousted Lawford and then cast Bing Crosby in this movie in what would have been Lawford's uh, role. So that kind of was, you know, already there was some drama to begin with. But then during the, the filming of this movie, two big things happened. JFK got assassinated, which is pretty terrible. And, you know, even though uh, Sinatra was was pissed off at, at JFK, this was obviously upsetting. They, they all knew each other and he had spent a lot of time working, you know, to campaign for him. And so, uh, the, you know, not great. Um, and then uh, his son was kidnapped only a few weeks later, Frank Sinatra Jr., which, you know, of course, because he was friends with Robert Kennedy, he got the FBI on this real quick. And uh, the kidnappers, I mean, the story itself is not terribly exciting as far as celebrity kidnappings go. These guys were kind of amateurs and they even let Sinatra Jr. go before the whole thing worked out and they all got arrested. But it made Sinatra seriously consider shutting down the production. And he actually even cut numbers that were going to be in this uh, and then just basically wrapped the whole thing up. So I, you can definitely tell, I think you can tell throughout this that Sinatra is like a little distracted. And then also that that ending is just so stupid and it makes absolutely no sense. And it's like, okay, I guess they just like powered through this and like they just, cause he, he was going to, otherwise he was going to just not finish the film. So he, he's not very dynamic in this movie at all. He does kind of sleepwalk his way through it. Yeah. Everyone kind of does. I mean, the music's really lame. My Kind of Town actually premiered for the, in this film. So that that's, you know, a classic Sinatra hit. Never one of my favorites, though. It's Yeah, it's not my favorite. It's the only song I knew beforehand, before you know, before seeing this movie. Well, I mean, what else is there, though? I mean, you have Martin sings, uh, you know, a song about how much he loves his mother and what feels <laughs> like a, a lullaby. And then Sammy Davis Jr. sings this crazy song about how much he loves guns. It's like the NRA theme song. Yeah, Bang Bang. <laughs> 
That was my, um, I know we're going to get to our favorite numbers, but that was my favorite. And I think, I mean, the song is, is fun. Ho- hopefully it's pretty tongue-in-cheek how, how pro-gun it is. But uh, it's got some nice tap dancing from Sammy. It's the only number in the show that's got any really good dancing. He crushes it, but it was really questionable. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, and also... Speaking of questionable, there's there's a point in the number where, where Sammy Davis Jr. gets down on his knees like Al Jolson singing Mammy, you know? Yeah. So Sammy Davis Jr. is sort of doing a minstrel show homage in the middle of this number. It's brief, but uh, but uncomfortable. And like holding two machine guns as he does it. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite song in this actually was that, uh, that like bootleg sit down, you're rocking the boat. Mr. Booze. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So the one the one fun thing in this movie is that they you know Robbo opens this casi- this uh, speakeasy casino and at the press of a button all of the walls will will turn and it looks more like a uh, like a teetotaler uh, you know church a mission a chapter house yeah they, well they sing this song where they're they're basically like preaching how terrible alcohol is and and it's it's funny I, what I liked about it not that the song was so great but it it actually of, of the few things that made me laugh in this movie. Bing Crosby sings this and then there's um, Sinatra and, and Dean are on stage and they're both just like they, they just look so like they don't want to be there <laughs> and they don't want to be doing this. And especially Dean Martin, he spends a, it, it's really fun to sit there and just watch watch what he's doing in the background because he does a whole bunch of just silly little things kind of just to make himself laugh. It looks like stuff like, you know, just being slightly off and or sitting on on Sinatra when they stand up and then sit back down and. Uh, so that was fun. I like I like that one. Oh, how ironic it is that these Rat Pack guys are singing about the evils of alcohol when uh, right when their whole shtick is about how how fun it is to to be inebriated. I like Sammy Davis Jr. A lot of his background stuff is fun. I mean, he doesn't have enough of a role, but I mean, during Dean's song, he um, does a little Jerry Lewis impression. I don't know if you caught that. Where he yeah. does like a double take. Yeah, no, Sammy Davis Jr. is is woefully underused in this. And then Bing Crosby is I don't like what is he doing in this movie? He has all these weird musical numbers where he's singing with children. The classic song other than My Kind of Town is Style, where Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Dean Martin sing about how you should dress dress well, which I can get behind. That's a good message. But it's not a great song. It's fun to watch just because it's the it's Sinatra and Crosby and, and Martin, but and Bing Crosby gets a whole '80s wardrobe change montage, yeah, <laughs> which which is ridiculous and not as amusing as they think it is. Yeah, it's definitely it goes on way too long, and it, it could have been way more fun. And then there's Maid Marian, and this is the, the daughter of this old mobster who was killed, and she's like an evil bitch. Yeah, but she's fun. I, she she gets to be manipulative. I don't know. I thought that was all right. It just felt very much like, you know, women are terrible. They even have women protesting in the end because, it, you know, they're they're all dumb and evil, right? Like, Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what Bing Crosby was doing in this movie anyway, yeah. since it ties to our theme. This movie, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's it, in some ways even more traditional or hearkening back to a, an even older style of Hollywood musical, uh, which is the, the 30s. 40s musical where, where Bing Crosby was a huge star and the the thing with the orphans is really along the lines of his like going my way type movies and uh, and I think because this is this movie is set in the prohibition era they um, 
I think part of the reason for bringing Bing in is because he was one of the biggest musical stars in the 30s, and also the same reason they bring Edward G. Robinson in is he's he was one of the big gangster stars of the 30s, so I think it adds some legitimacy to their uh, to their homage, getting those two actors from an older era in it. So you think that this is more traditional than Mary Poppins? In certain ways. I mean, Mary Poppins is a Disney movie, and those sort of exist out of time. They have their own traditions, and it's always going to be the Disney thing, which is very conservative in, in a lot of ways, and just always looking back at, at how great things used to be. So it's hard to call it progressive at all. But at the same time, this Robin and the Seven Hoods sort of seems like a last hurrah for these Rat Pack guys and movies like this. I, Frank Sinatra didn't make another musical after this, I don't believe. No, and neither did Crosby. Yeah, so it, it really just seems like this is the last gasp of this old-style musical, this 50s, like, get the boys together and sing a few songs-style musical. And actually, funny enough, Sinatra had brought Gene Kelly in to do choreography, his old buddy, and then he fired him <laughs> because he didn't want to take direction when he was, you know, producing the film, essentially, which is a major mistake because this really could have used some dancing. And all of them could dance. And, and Sammy Davis Jr., of course, does the best job, as you said, but there isn't much. It's pretty boring to watch other than you know, the fact that you're interested in seeing these guys speak, there's really not too much visually here. There's definitely one thing that they couldn't have done on stage, and that's the the massive amounts of destruction that happens on screen with uh, you know machine guns and, and sledgehammers and axes when they destroy each other's casinos. That kind of action couldn't happen on stage, and I, I think there's there's a bit of spectacle to that, for sure. And just the, the whole running gag with the cornerstones that, have policemen's bodies in them that, that um, <laughs> keep getting lowered by a crane into place. Like, I mean, that's a that's a gag that I, I guess he could do that on stage, but I don't know. It, it's still it. Yeah, it feels very stage bound. In fact, it's the same sets that were used in My Fair Lady. It's the Warner Brothers backlot, which I just recently visited. Oh boy! So then the next film on our list, really, uh, now we're really getting into a film that embraces being a film. Yeah, but at the same time, it's uh, also highly melodramatic and emotionally manipulative, and the music is, is sort of pushing you to feel a certain way. It's kind of the ultimate emotion over plot musical, and that's uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Les Parapluies de Cherbourg, uh, directed by Jacques Demy. Well done. Hey, if you get to say all the Italian titles, I get to say all the French ones. Geneviève me donnera elle-même sa réponse. Je ne sais que vous dire. Mais ne me dites rien. Geneviève décidera elle-même. Bonsoir, madame. Bonsoir, monsieur Cassard. It's a French musical, fairly unique in that it's popular music, kind of a light jazzy score, but it's done in the opera style where every line of dialogue is sung. Nothing is spoken in it. It's like a jazz opera. Yeah. Legrand, who died just recently. Yeah, that's right. Michel Legrand, did his, his music for this is amazing, and he deserves as much credit for this movie as Jacques Demy it was a dream project that they both worked on together for years, and they both, you know, spent 
a long time just trying to get somebody to to finance this movie and because it's wall-to-wall music and um you know all the dialogue is sung it definitely is much Michelle Legrand's show Jacques Demy's but Jacques Demy is one of these uh one of these French new wave directors not often thought of uh in the same way that Truffaut and Godard and those guys are I think because Umbrellas of Cherbourg is his most popular movie. It was actually a huge worldwide hit. It, it was big in America as well. In this year, I mean, I, I think it had its New York premiere before the end of 1964, and uh, a couple of the songs from it became uh, standards in you know, the English language versions, I Will Wait For You, and um, so it was... Um, you know, just this big foreign musical hit, probably the, the only one that anyone can name. Uh, but it, you wouldn't necessarily connect it to the, you know, the off-the-cuff uh, French New Wave style because it's so perfectly choreographed. The soundtrack was pre-recorded before the movie was made, so all of the actors in it have to lip-sync all of their dialogue and... and you know, so it's, it you know, had to be very carefully planned just to get the timing right. You know, there's nothing freewheeling about it, which is, you know, what what most people think of as the main characteristic of French New Wave. But at the same time, it's also an homage to a lot of uh, old Hollywood musicals and referencing a lot of the same types of movies that uh, the French New Wave directors like to reference. Godard was a huge fan of this movie. It's it's kind of, in some ways, in in, in the spirit of his... uh, a woman is a woman, where it's sort of taking the musical form and and you know, kind of going in a an idiosyncratic direction with it. Right. It it was crazy. You know, the this is um I rewatched it obviously for the podcast, and this was the first time for whatever reason that I realized how subversive this entire thing was. Like not only for its time, but just even to the genre in general. It's like the anti-musical uber musical. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in some ways, it can be seen as about the Algerian War, about how it destroyed people's lives. You know, just people who who went off to the Algerian War and returned, and, and their lives were they they couldn't fit back into into the the lives that they had before. And uh, you know, and guy goes to see a prostitute, and it's very it's it's about very ordinary people and the settings in it. Uh, Cherbourg is, is shot. It's all shot on location and it's uh, you know, a very realistic setting, but they, they turn these locations into, they sort of feel like movie sets. Like they, they've painted the walls, these bright colors. Colors in this are so good. Yeah. The interiors in particular where people's costumes match the the wallpaper perfectly the art direction is is unbelievable but i i should mention it this movie is just about a boy and a girl catherine deneuve is genevieve and uh, nino castelnuovo is guy and she's she works in her mother's umbrella shop and he works in a as an auto mechanic and uh, he's He's drafted to go into the war, uh, and before he leaves, Guy and Genevieve have uh, have their one night of passion, and she gets pregnant. Uh, he's not going to return for two years, and then, uh, but she, so she's she's at her wit's end, and her, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of money. The, the umbrella shop is not doing that well, so Genevieve has to uh, turn to this uh, this rich guy Roland Cossard, who's who's fallen madly in love with her, and and can sort of keep her and her mother afloat financially and uh and so when Guy returns 
he finds that, that Genevieve is married and uh, Roland has uh, has adopted their child as his own and uh, yeah they don't get together no it's a it's a tragic it's definitely subversive yeah you know the there's that's the other thing that I really noticed this time around was just how the how much this movie really embraces being a movie as you said it's all shot on location but also you know we have all of these really interesting angles and shots that you don't get in anything. I mean, especially this movie in comparison to my fair lady, just on, on as far as filmmaking goes, you would think it was years apart. Um, You know, the, the, the shots looking down on the street, we see umbrellas looking up at the sky. We have that shot from, from the train pulling away from the platform characters walking from rooms to rooms that, you know, they, they have to turn corners to get into uh, things that you basically you either cannot replicate on stage or that would be you could and in, in probably but doesn't really happen on stage until almost, you know, like the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so much beautiful, like self-conscious moving camera work that gives you a completely different sensation than if you're watching a musical on stage. Yeah, you definitely never feel like you're sitting in an audience, you know, the way the others do. You're you're there with the characters. You're the you're the fly on the wall. And uh, it's also like it's a tight hour and a half, man. (laughs) I mean, they edited out all of the transitions between songs and they just give you like the meat. There's really no wasted time and wasted space in this, even though the lyrics, funny enough, you know, then you get these lyrics about like, do you want regular or super gasoline? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there, you know, that really it cuts when when the the scene is over, when the, the point of the scene has gotten across, it immediately will snap into something else. And it's almost jarring in some ways to watch, but it also it's it's embracing cinema. It's so embracing what what they can do and what they they don't have to deal with and and you know they don't have to waste time setting anything up you're just there in it mm-hmm. and the story is so simple that transitions are not important because there's no way you can't follow what was your favorite song well i mean because of the nature of this musical there's um you can't really point to distinct songs i mean i will wait for you you know that refrain just keeps coming in over and over and when the you know when the when the orchestra swells with that theme and you know you just can't help but but feel swept up into the emotions of the moment it's 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 a beautiful piece of music i really like that roland song where he sings about lola which is the previous demi film yeah, I should mention that too. So uh, Roland Cassard is a character from uh, from Demi's previous film, Lola. This is Umbrellas of Cherbourg is actually the, the second movie in a trilogy. Uh, the first, Lola, was also supposed to be a musical, but Demi just couldn't come up with the money to, to make it a musical. So he just shot it. it was sort of a musical kind of story set in Cherbourg about a, a cabaret dancer. And Roland Cassard is, you know, enamored of her, but his love for her is unrequited. And uh, Genevieve in this movie is kind of uh, his his rebound in a way from his disastrous uh, experience with with Lola. Uh, the third movie in in th- this trilogy is Young Girls of Rochefort, which is uh, Catherine Deneuve again and uh, and Jean Kelly, and uh, it's 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 more upbeat, a lot of dancing in that uh, in that movie. And all three of them, I, I love them all just about equally. Well, if I haven't pissed you off with uh, Mary Poppins, I'm probably going to piss you off right now when I say that Catherine Deneuve, as much as I love her as an actress, I don't really think she can sing. 
It's not her voice. Is it not? No. Who's the singer? I, I could find a name, but it's it's not Catherine Deneuve. Nobody's doing their own singing in this. Really just because of the nature of how the, the movie was put together, they had to record the soundtrack first, not even necessarily knowing who was going to be in it because they hadn't financed the actual filming of it yet. So yeah, they just kind of cast the movie based on whose appearance would fit the voices best. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the truth. Um, Danielle Lacari is the voice of Genevieve. Huh. Were you going to shit on this movie some more? What else? What other what other bad <laughs> things do you have to say about it? No, I love this movie. Uh, that was it. I just I didn't <laughs> love the singing. I don't love Legrand, quite frankly, though I think that this is one of his better operas. Yeah, uh, some of his movie soundtracks, I, I can't point to a specific one right now, but it disappoints me when I haven't noticed who did the music, and it, it's particularly cheesy, and I, I go to, to look up who did it, and it's Michel Legrand. I don't always like his sensibility, but the score is perfect. The colors in this movie always remind me of The Nutty Professor, which came out <laughs> the year before this movie, and I don't know, I'm just saying. Just, just going to throw that out there. Okay. That's fair. I, it seems like this period, the you know, mid-60s, was very much about embracing color. Yeah, you know, American movies, foreign movies, it's you know, a lot of solid colors and, and just bright primary colors, trying to make the, the backgrounds and the, and the costumes jump off the screen. Yeah, you know, it's funny in the, our first episode, we were we mentioned uh, How to Succeed in Business, and I, I called that one out as being one of those movies that absolutely is the dream of like our modern perception of what the 60s look like. And so I think Umbrellas of Cherbourg is, is the same thing. It, it just it looks so 60s in the best possible way. Yeah, I would, I would love to live in this movie. Oh, hell yeah. Even with all the tragic romance. I mean, it's like a happy ending. It's just not happy for their romance. Yeah. I feel like Guy ends up in a better place than Genevieve, really. She's just a, a rich man's wife. I think that Guy finds his romance with Madeleine, or at least she helps him through this rough period where by the end they have a, a good relationship, whereas uh, Genevieve has only ever settled for Roland Cassard, so her romance is pretty much gone forever from her life. Poor Roland. Yeah. Did you cry? Um, you know what? I, I didn't actually, I didn't cry, but the, that ending in, in the snow in the gas station, definitely oh, like it chokes you yeah, up yeah. easy. When Genevieve asks Guy if he wants to meet Françoise, their child together, and he, he shakes his head no. That gets me every single time, even though I know it's coming. I think that's part of what gets me. I know it's coming. It's very realistic. And that's where the French New Wave, of course, comes in. That there, There's definitely no happy Hollywood ending. And they don't even pretend. There's not even a like, <laughs> you know, it's not good. But here's like, here's the one glimmer of hope thing. I mean, again, like they're not doing terribly either of them. But it's pretty damning and, and sad ending. And goes to show that, yeah, romance really can only exist to such a degree. Can only exist in the movies, but but not this particular movie. Which is why it's all the funnier that the, the next movie on our list here is, is Viva Las Vegas. Come on, everybody, and whistle this tune right now. Come on, everybody, and stomp your feet real loud. Come on, everybody, take a real deep breath and repeat after me. Love of my baby. Love of my baby. Love of my baby. Love of my baby. Hey. 
have been following my long, illustrious career, you will find that once many a moon ago, I watched and reviewed every single Elvis movie in something called Jenna Does Elvis for Smug Film. And uh, so this is actually the, I don't know, maybe the third time I've seen this, but not in a long time. So that was kind of fun to come back to. And Elvis, he's kind of in the middle of his not great movie career right now in 64. This is his 15th movie. It became his highest grossing film ever. So this maybe it's the apex in some ways, even though it's not the great. It's not the greatest film. <laughs> it's pretty typical of what's terrible about lots of his movies. Yeah, it's funny because it's it's definitely a typical film for him. And then also at the same time, what makes it better is the the cast here is having someone who who can help carry the film besides just Elvis and Margaret. Yeah, she she makes this movie extraordinary if you're willing to call it extraordinary. And Elvis really shares the limelight with her. She's as much the star as he is, which didn't happen much in his career, right? I I can't think of any other leads that get the amount of screen time and songs. Like, she's got two songs in it, right? I I can't think of any other lead actresses in an Elvis movie that that have their own songs. No, definitely not. This was pretty rare. And and the fact that she was also, I mean, the fact that she was even a, a, a star herself, this was something where, you know, I think that part, it was partially the, the colonel didn't want other people sharing the limelight with Elvis and they didn't want the competition for his own films. But weirdly, actually, I mean, 64, this is the, Elvis would put out three movies a year. In 64, he had Roustabout, which, which has Barbara Stanwyck. It was actually a pretty decent Elvis movie as far as Elvis movies go. It's not great, but it, it was not too bad either. And then there's, what's the other one called? Kissing Cousins. Oh, Kissing Cousins. <laughs> Man, Kissing Cousins is bad. Though Kissing Cousins is the one where he has, there, there's another Elvis. And he gets to oh, yeah. wear like a blonde wig and meet himself. <laughs> I have seen that. But I, I cannot tell you, I, I can't emphasize how bad Kissing Cousins is. Otherwise, <laughs> it's really not even worth the time. But but so Viva Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, now you have Anne Margaret who was called the female Elvis and she's coming off of Fly by Birdie and being a, a major success in her own right. And then on top of that, the two of them ended up having a bit of a fling. I mean, she, she claimed that she sensed that they were kindred souls the second that they met because they were both talented and young. And uh, I think really it was that she wasn't intimidated by him. And that certainly comes across in this film. If he's flirting, she flirts right back. She's funny. She's a, you know, a good sport. She's not afraid of looking ridiculous. She's not afraid of just owning the stage and, and being a star. Yeah, they both like to gyrate on stage and make really funny faces while they're doing it. <laughs> Yeah, and they started dating and, and, you know, covertly, but it was like literally newspaper headlines when it came out. And this is the time where Elvis, for people who want Elvis facts, you know, he had Priscilla on the side right now. She was his girl. He promised he would marry her, but they were not yet married. And then he met Anne Margaret, who kind of, I think, was a game changer for him in some ways. He realized all of the things he could have had, which is an equal as opposed to the little girl he can mold at home into the perfect homemaker, which is what he really expected from his women. But, you know, he Elvis is a a man of his word and and would not leave Priscilla because he had already promised her that he was going to marry her. uh, And he didn't want her to, to be involved in more scandal than already was happening and uh, and Margaret kind of knew this and, and they both accepted that this wasn't going to happen, but they remained good friends. And she to this day won't even dish on him or say anything bad about him, which is which is kind of interesting. 
Uh, she keeps, uh, you know, she'll say that he was wonderful and they, and then they had a real connection, but she won't like talk about what they've talked about. You know, she, she won't, she won't betray his trust. Uh, so that's kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately in this film, I, I kind of feel that it doesn't, and, and I might be in the minority because a lot of people seem to point to this as being, oh, they had such great chemistry on screen. I don't know that they have great chemistry in this movie, but they're certainly a lot of fun to watch together. And, you know, the plot of this is is sort of not even worth talking about. But Elvis is Lucky Jackson, who likes to race cars. And Anne Margaret is Rusty Martin. She works as a swim instructor in a Vegas casino. And obviously this whole thing takes place in Vegas. And there's a italian car racer named mancini who he has like a sort of nice sporting relationship with elvis and they kind of both want to date rusty and they both want to race cars and they both want to win yeah it's like basically they try to the the first half of the movie is trying to figure out who rusty is after they meet her briefly the second half is uh you know elvis's little romance with her and then the third half the third half the the third part is quite frankly there's three halves of this movie the third part is just the car race which is pretty exciting actually i'm not a a car race fan in any way but i i feel like the grand prix itself is is pretty well shot and and exciting so if you're going to point to one other thing in this movie that makes it rise above some of the other elvis movies is the uh the, the grand prix set piece now that we've turned this umbrellas of sherberg corner we're, we're into a full-on movie here. I mean, there, there's shots in helicopters and shots in cars. Never mind that, that now we're even getting into pop music soundtracks as opposed to any sort of traditional musical kind of soundtrack. The music here, sometimes it moves the plot along a little bit. There's a, one or two songs that are that feel like they're, they're telling you something that the, the character wants to express. But mostly it's just taking time to stop and sing and crazy dance the way that the two of them can do so well. And even when it's taking place, there are scenes where there, there's a talent show and it takes place on a stage. And even those scenes don't totally feel like a staged musical. They, they're kind of a little, they're definitely a little edgier and a little more interesting. Although, um, um, oh, I was just going to say that uh, Elvis does Viva Las Vegas there and it's all one shot. Like the, the camera doesn't cut at all. And it's not very dynamic, but it is like if you're going to point to one part of this movie that is just like a a stage number it it would have to be elvis doing viva las vegas in in one take in one shot in in that scene yeah and then there's also that one with uh ann margaret singing my rival which i think looks it looked like it was one take as well which was impressive because she kind of is putting things together and and there's like moving pieces and it was it was pretty well coordinated (laughs) <laughs> the the Viva Las Vegas in this movie though can I just say it feels like and it has always felt to me like uh, a David Lynch fever dream version <laughs> of Viva Las Vegas it's like there it, 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 there's these huge black shadows there's flashing purple and yellow lights there's like like feverish men playing drums with no faces and like twitching showgirls who are like moving a little too fast on pedestals and Elvis is just like like dripping in sweat and uh you know he's like he can't stop the rock you know it's just like (laughs) (laughs) it's just the weirdest it's like so strangely sinister if you just change the music if it wasn't literally viva las vegas which is it's it's a fun song it's a very Mm -hmm. elvis song yeah and he doesn't really have his moves are really really strange in that number i I mean he's got other numbers probably my favorite 
song is uh, Come On Everybody, where he's on stage and doing doing a lot of great Elvis moves. And, and Ann-Margaret is down in the audience. He's singing for her dance class. And, she, you know, she's got her, her bright red shirt on, and they're, they're sort of dancing at each other. And, and then she joins them on stage, and they dance together. And that's that's my favorite number. Yeah, definitely. Because that's, like, that's the whole movie. That's what everyone, I think, remembers. Because you definitely see the chemistry there. Because they're just both, like, they're both giving it their all. Like, Anne Margaret, I mean, like, she's always just, like, she just, she seems like someone who, who would be, like, a total weirdo if she wasn't so good looking. Yeah, well, it's it's the confidence. Like, her moves are so ridiculous, but she's got such confidence when she's doing it. You can't stop watching. It's It's hypnotizing. This is also like a great commercial for Las Vegas, too. This is the heyday of <laughs> Vegas. It looks great. You know, all of the neon lights and, uh, you know, there's a scene where they're going from casino to casino to find Rusty, who they think is a showgirl, even though she's not. And you just see it's, it's, it's a commercial for Las Vegas, like in the same way that Blue Hawaii is a commercial for Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this follows on uh, Robin and Seven Hoods pretty well, too, because they're both about gambling joints and, and how, I mean, I think in its own way, Robin and the Seven Hoods is also a commercial for, for Las Vegas because Frank and those guys are all pretty invested in that scene at this point. Oh, yeah. I guess we also should mention how we're into rock and roll here. I mean, there, there definitely have been plenty of rock and roll musicals before this. I mean, starting with Blackboard Jungle, which is the first, let's like 1957, the first movie to have rock and roll prominently on the soundtrack. And, and the British were making a lot of rock and roll movies with Cliff Richard. And uh, there are a lot of like, you know, behind the scenes, like let's, you know, talent show type movies where you, you get a lot of... Um, you know, Fats Domino and a lot of these uh, rock and rollers uh, all show up for this uh, this big show that's being put on, but there's also kind of a storyline to it. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, Elvis is the, or was pre-60s, the face of rock and roll. And then this movie, though, despite the fact that, yes, it embraces being a movie, it also uh, is still very staged, you know, like it doesn't feel spontaneous. It doesn't feel, it doesn't embrace all of the stuff that, that made Elvis a star to begin with, which was the sad truth of most of his movie career and being mismanaged, quite frankly, but also the sort of that Hal Wallace and the Colonel, both of whom were figured it's a, oh, it's a math formula, <laughs> you know, like Elvis plus music plus girl equals, you know, big bucks kind of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, so much of his early appeal was his rawness and his wildness and his rebelliousness, like those moves that couldn't be shown on TV. And, and so much of that has been smoothed out of his personality at this point. He's a boy that uh, that you could bring home to your mother, whereas a big part of his appeal early on was it that he definitely was not. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's that one scene in this movie where Mancini is trying to seduce Rusty and brings her back to the room. And then Elvis dresses up as like a bellhop and mm -hmm. is delivering room service, which reminded it feels like Elvis doing his best Jerry Lewis impersonation, <laughs> quite frankly, because he's just bumbling through stuff. He's dropping things on people as they're trying to have this romantic date. And obviously Elvis is trying to ruin it so that he can get Rusty. But he, I actually enjoyed that sequence, not that it was so funny as much as it was, it felt a little more spontaneous and it felt a little more fun and young versus some of the other things that they do. I mean, even when he's seducing Anne Margaret by the pool, it's just, you know, he's just walking around with a guitar and they just walk around a pool. And then at the end, she pushes him in, which is, which is kind of cool. Can't lie. It wrecks that poor mm -hmm. guitar, but. And he loses all his money. 
Oh, yeah. The plot. (laughs) (laughs) There was one. I also wanted to mention another Anne-Margaret movie that she did after Viva Las Vegas that I watched called The Pleasure Seekers, which is a remake of a 50s non-musical called Three Coins in the Fountain. This is set in Madrid instead of Rome, but it's the same story, same director even, Jean Nicolescu. And this is, first of all, the music that Anne-Margaret sings is definitely more jazz standardy type show tune songs. So it's, it doesn't have that rock and roll spirit that, that Viva Las Vegas does. I mean, it's not much of a movie. The relationship between the, the three girls at the center, played by Anne-Margaret, Carol Lindley, and Pamela Tiffin, is uh, really likable. They're really supportive of each other, but then, you know, all of their storylines revolve around, you know, some dull guy that they're trying to get trying to marry. It feels like the songs are kind of put into this movie as an afterthought, really. It seems like, oh, we've got, you know, we've we've already cast Anne Margaret in this movie, but it turns out that everybody loves her as a singer and dancer, so let's, you know, let's have her sing a few songs. Nobody else in the movie sings other than her. This is a pretty forgettable musical banking on Anne Margaret's rising stardom. But, you know, I figured I'd mention it since it's it's another musical from 1964. So then, funny enough, I feel like moving on to a, a Frankie and Annette movie, you'd almost think would be a step backwards from Elvis. But it, it actually, weirdly, is definitely more rock and roll. Like, I yeah. don't even... Like, there are moments of it that are, are easily more rock and roll and, and, and less conservative than Viva Las Vegas. For sure. It just is uh, purely a, a movie for the kids, like... American International Pictures, AIP, you know, this independent company not connected to the studios at all, but sort of the, the biggest independent became a big deal in the 60s because they were catering to the kids and, the, you know, this the 16 to 25 crowd that have, you know, all the spending money and they're going to, to the drive-ins all the time uh, so they can they can neck in the backseat of the car. Is AIP is just, like, cranking out all these low-budget pictures just for the kids. And because there's, like, you know, this built-in audience and it's not, you know, trying to to appeal to anyone outside of that age range, these movies are just kind of like anything goes free-for-alls. And and they're a lot of fun for that reason. This Muscle Beach Party is the one that we uh, watched for the episode. second of the Frankie and Annette beach party movies. And, and also a, a, a movie that we chose after doing a lot of beach party movie watching research, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's we, we had initially chosen um, Horror at Party Beach. I didn't want to do a Frankie and Annette movie from this year because you know, sort of their most notable ones are the, the, the first one, Beach Party, and probably Beach Blanket Bingo from the next year. So I said, let's talk about beach party movies because you have to when when you're talking about musicals of 1964. But let's here's this odd like horror beach party movie that's you know often considered one of the worst movies ever made and, and it touted itself as the first horror musical. But it's yeah just kind of a piece of junk and I didn't have a whole lot to say about it. Um, and then I ended up watching Muscle Beach Party just for the hell of it and just had so much fun that I that I begged Jenna to swap this one out. <laughs> 
I kind of liked Horror of Party Beach, for the record. It felt like the lodestar of, like, 1960s bikini monster bee movies. But anyhow. Well, it's way better than the other horror musical from that year that I watched, The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies. That's just... That's such a good name, though. (laughs) That's just completely incompetently made at least horror at party beach you could see how at the time it would have been scary there's a high body count and you've just got dead bodies strewn around and it's and the goofy goofy monster costumes but for super low budget horror movie it's all right but we're here to talk about frankie and annette beach movies these movies all kind of follow the same pattern frankie and annette are are frankie and dd they play characters Frankie and Dee Dee and all these movies and they they're boyfriend and girlfriend and you know nice boy nice girl but their relationship goes through some kind of uh difficulty in the course of the movie and then usually uh you know, this biker gang shows up uh led by uh what's his name Eric Von Zipper and uh they they all end with the surfer bar at the end getting destroyed in a fight but um this this movie Muscle Beach Party was uh was unusual in that instead of the biker gang that's in every other one of these movies, I think they have these muscle men. You've got Jack Fanny and and his muscle men, and they're taking up uh, space on the beach. That uh, He's Don Rickles. <laughs> yeah, Jack Fanny is Don Rickles, and um, yeah, they just can't seem to share the beach with these surfer kids. So they get into some conflict. They're the ones who end up getting in a fight at the end and, and busting up the surfer bar. But then you throw into the mix this uh, Italian contessa who's uh, played by Luciana Paluzzi, who most people would know as the uh, the bad Bond girl from Thunderball. She wants to meet Mr. Galaxy, the the biggest hunkiest piece of meat in the uh, <laughs> of, of, of of these muscle men, these oiled up bronzed beefcakes that bring such a homoerotic element to this movie um she wants <laughs> to say bart keep keep explaining them she uh she wants to meet mr galaxy the, the biggest and hunkiest of them all and basically just have sex with him and be done with it she wants to buy him too like she doesn't just want to like have him she wants to like buy him and like own him and use him yeah which is kind of empowering <laughs> <laughs> which was her plan and she you know almost follows through that until she meets Frankie and finds a boy that she really could fall in love with and offers him a recording contract and Dee Dee is not happy about that there's not much to the plot but it's just an opportunity for a lot of silliness and uh surfing and well I will point out that the reason why Frankie ends up rejecting this very 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 attractive Italian contessa is that he bails because he doesn't want to end up being a kept man, which I just want to say proves your theory wrong about the Cinderella fantasy that you expressed in your last podcast. <laughs> I All I said was, I am willing to be Cinderella. I, I, <laughs> I, I agree with you that, that no 60s man would ever want to be Cinderella. That's why it's such a goofy idea for a Jerry Lewis movie. No, it's funny. Yeah, he. it's like, have you seen there's a, a great old SNL skit with Carrie Fisher guest starring as Princess Leia and she beams down into a Frankie and Annette movie and Gilda Radner is like, hi, I'm Annette and this is my boyfriend Frankie and these are my breasts. And then they also like talk about like, yeah, we're all just middle class wasp and Italian teenagers living off of our parents until it's hip to reject them. Which is like 100% when I noticed mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone in this movie is Italian or they're blonde. And then all of the comedians are Jewish. 
And there's a you have like Buddy Hackett, you have Don Rickles, you have Maury Amsterdam. They made this whole movie for me, like without them. And not that they were on fire because they definitely weren't. Though I actually think Don Rickles was amazing in this. He was, he was pretty funny. He was like really cute in this movie. <laughs> and Buddy Hackett had so many goofy reaction shots. He's, he's, he's probably got 50 goofy reaction shots. There's one scene in particular where it just keeps cutting back to him and he's making another goofy face. And it's 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 pretty outstanding. <laughs> that and the uh, and Candy and her killer twist that whenever she would shake it, right. she would she would n- <laughs> knock boys off their surfboards, and it's just an absurdity to to these movies that I, I find so appealing. Yeah, I kind of I love that that yeah she like she's wearing like full on pants on the beach, but it's like this fringe outfit. So whenever she shakes her stuff, all the men fall over. And there's even a line where where they're like, "Why doesn't it work on you?" And she's like, "I guess it only works on men." <laughs> so it's pretty it's pretty amusing. And these muscle men are are ridiculous. Like they none of them speak. Like they're literally like this sort of <laughs> lunkhead. Well, actually, so the the opening of this movie was so great because it's this cartoon drawing. He's actually a famous cartoonist. I don't know his yeah, name. Who, yeah, <laughs> we, but it's just you know, Mad Magazine style humor. Yeah, and it's great, and it and it really sets the whole theme for this movie because it feels like a cartoon come to life. There's nothing realistic about this whatsoever, down to like that opening scene where they're they're all like there's like 18 people in like one like old timey car, and they're driving down the highway and they're like swerving in and out. Like like I just wanted to see them get into this like horrific car accident in that opening scene. Like <laughs> there's no way to watch it and not feel that way. And there's all these surfing metaphors that that are that are they're they're just delightful. It's like they're trying to be really serious, and he's like, Frankie, you know, like the way that you're acting right now, you know, like golden surfboards, they don't float too good, man. And you're gonna you're gonna ride that wave, and then you're gonna get uh, washed out, and you're gonna be covered in sand, and you're like, whoa, man. <laughs> Well, the main metaphor in this movie is the is the flying one. Dee uh, Dee wants Frankie to come back to Earth, but he's got these big dreams and he he doesn't want to right. settle down. And and uh, and then at one point you actually get the Mister Galaxy like holding onto the bottom of a helicopter and uh, and actually flying through the sky, which looked real. Yeah, I think it was. How about a favorite song in this? Do you have one? Mother. Frickin' Stevie Wonder is in this movie, man. Yeah, there's That's there's the no song. question. Yeah, Happy Street with 13-year-old little Stevie Wonder at the end. Clearly the Which best Which is amazing song. and definitely the reason why this film comes in this order in our list here is that you get these really good... <laughs> I mean, especially Stevie Wonder. Not, the other ones are a little bit... Uh, they're a little shaky. They're not bad, but you have these moments of just live performance or, you know, it's a movie, but it's to to highlight the joys of being in a club and seeing somebody perform for you and just singing. And so none of the songs like that are are moving the plot anywhere, but it's definitely it captures some some really youthful cool moments. And there's also I think there's a lot I mean I don't know. I feel like Frankie and Dee Dee kind of are pressing this whole like a man should be with a woman thing. But it doesn't feel like really the point of the movie whatsoever. There's actually, it feels sort of more subversive in general that you have these outside factors that are trying to get in and and everyone kind of just even rejecting romance in order to go surf. And it's not authentic, but it's playing to, it's a little closer than what Viva Las Vegas was as far as, you know, reaching the kids. Yeah. 
I mean, forget about the gay undertones in this movie. There's also, like, you've got this man-eating Italian woman, or the you rarely see a, a woman with this kind of sexual appetite in, uh, in movies of this era. And that's pretty subversive in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it lays on the sex pretty thick by having all these uh, unclothed teenagers just shimmying on the beach. But it's also just so wholesome, and I think that's why they, they go back to this uh, A Girl Needs a Boy song. It's like, oh yeah, in case you forgot, we are trying to promote monogamous heterosexuality here. And that's, uh, that's what's important, kids. Forget about all this other outrageous stuff. Yeah, but at least it doesn't end in a marriage. That's true. Frankie's got to chase that wave, man. He doesn't have time for Dee Dee's shit. Yeah, well, and they can't get together at the end of this because they they have to have another fight in the next beach movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, there were two others, in fact, this year, in 1964. There was Bikini Beach, which uh, features a plotline revolving around a chimp that surfs, just a guy in a monkey suit. And Frankie Avalon plays a, a second character named Potato Bug, who's a drag racer with a thick, like, Liverpudlian accent. And he's got a blonde wig and like a terry thomas gap in his teeth and then there was also pajama party which frankie avalon just has a very minor role in as the leader of the martians who send this uh, martian boy down to to malibu the malibu beach to uh prepare earth for a martian invasion i guess sounds great Tommy Kirk, who plays the the lead instead of Frankie Avalon, um, is is the Martian boy, and he just gets too distracted. He falls in love with Annette Funicello, and uh, Buster Keaton is in it. Huh. He's he's actually in a bunch of these beach party movies. He's playing a, a criminal who's, who's trying who wears a like an Indian headdress for the whole movie. I thought Maury Amsterdam was kind of interesting in this movie because he seems like he's he's like this drugged out weirdo. Yeah, he's in most of these. It's not Maury Amsterdam at his best, but he's got that weird eye thing, and he always I think he's the, he owns the surfer bar in all of these movies. So if he's not in all of them, he's in most of them. But yeah, huge, huge, huge hits. All of these movies, like these movies, were making. A lot more than than a lot of the studio product that was getting cranked out. Even Horror at Party Beach was like this this super cheap movie made for like $50,000 or something. was just a drive-in hit and made more than whatever big studio releases there were that weekend. So like the the kids were, were the ones with the money and they were making these movies, these cheap movies. They were turning them into hits. Like they were making somebody a whole bunch of money. And, you know, that's part of what killed the Hollywood musical is that uh, they're just like Hollywood thought that what they needed to do is just pump more money into these musicals. And, you know, the higher production values will, will be the bigger hits because people you know, will leave their TVs to see these like big extravaganzas. But, you know, with the exception of Sound of Music the following year, which which confused the studios even more, they're like, oh, maybe we were right. Maybe we do need to pump money into these big blockbuster musicals you know 64 was kind of the end of an era sort of why this transition was happening is that these these low budget rock and roll musicals were just so much more profitable made for so much less money and just making a bundle yeah and it's a shame because again you know you look at the the movies that we just spoke about and really the only difference is not that this is such a great movie i mean like the this muscle beach party it's it's almost like if if an Elvis movie was directed by like Frank Tashlin or something, it was, you know, it was, it was actually what I wanted from more Elvis movies 
and and it was just missing the the star power of of someone I cared about. I don't really care for Frankie Avalon so much, you know, sorry, sorry, all those Frankie heads out there, but it's just more alive. It's, it's trying to have more fun. It definitely doesn't feel like something your parents were into. And even though the, the quality of again, my fair lady or even Mary Poppins, like, I don't know, like the quality of these, of the, the music and this other, uh, you know, older stuff is so much better and the plots are so much better but they they feel stodgy. They feel they feel stuck in time, and that's definitely like you were saying. This these older uh, the studio heads who think that you know well if it's if it's not broke don't fix it as opposed to trying to innovate and trying to push things forward and keeping things fresh because that was really the only difference. It's not that these were so great or that kids were so stupid that they could only appreciate something so so dopey as these as much as it just felt like something different. It it really does feel like it's trying to trying to be something that that hasn't happened yet even if most of it is actually just a, a crummy repeat of the same damn thing over and over and mm-hmm. over again <laughs> which brings us to the ultimate rock and roll musical that came out in 1964 this is where we go Duh, that opening chord it's been a hard day's night and i've been working like a dog Kids really went nuts for this one. Oh yeah, I mean, well, a hard day's night. Now, this is the movie where you know I'm I'm gonna say this is, if not one of my absolute all-time favorite movies, just a, it's a brilliant movie. Like this is something where I I really have a hard time even criticizing in some ways because I I love it so much. Uh, and it's interesting. I mean, like this is a movie. The budget was it wasn't small, but it was small in comparison. It was about five hundred thousand dollars at the time. And then it raked in about 12 million, <laughs> you know, so uh, and this, of course, starring the Beatles as themselves. Although they um, never mention the Beatles by name at any point in the movie. They do not. Yeah. You see the name, obviously, when they on the drum set and on right. stage. But uh, it was directed by Richard Lester. The screenplay was um, Alan Owen. They hired a, a guy who had written already like a very sort of liver liverpudlian play and brought him in to do the screenplay. And what he basically did was sit with the Beatles for uh, a couple weeks and observe what their lives were like in order to come up with this sort of, you know, cinema verite style black and white movie, which, you know, was, was of course the choice. All these other movies we've watched from this year were in color. So he he kind of it was this mixture of seeing what an actual dynamic was, because obviously the you know, the Beatles uh, were showmen, but they weren't really actors trying to take the best of it, try to pump things up. There is a, a, you know, a slight plot in that basically the Beatles are on their way to play a show and it is, you know, the the hours before their show on TV. Yeah. Being being broadcast live for television. And you have things like um, Paul's grandfather, who's very clean. Who's uh, Wilfred Bramble? A villain, a real mixer. So yeah. <laughs> so quotable this movie. Oh my god! I I could we could just sit here and quote this film for the next hour. I would be fine. So you have Paul's grandfather. Uh, you have um, the the Beatles manager and their road manager, which is Norman Shake, which is Norman Rossington and uh, John Junkin. You have Victor Spinetti as the TV director. 
But all of these people really are just sort of, uh, they do help move the plot along, but other, unlike the Frankie and Annette movie, the, the stars of this are definitely not the supporting cast. It's definitely the Beatles. They just come across as fun, young, attractive, hip. It's edited super fast. It is laugh out loud funny. It is, it's the opposite of, of my fair lady, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to, to whipping up the, the, you know, the, the working class girl to become a lady. And that's when she learns how to rebel. The Beatles are already saying, fuck you right now, yeah. you know, with their Liverpool, Liverpool accents. And, and, uh, you know, they, they are famous and they're not changing, you know, for you, you're coming to them. And that's what's so wonderful and refreshing about them. They're spe- they speak their minds. They're they're sarcastic when they want to be. The fact even that they don't they aren't so thankful and, and loving to their fans. They're not. They're never obviously mean, or they're never shown in a bad light at all in this movie. But they also are trying to escape. In a lot of ways, this is a movie about these men who are cornered and trapped in their fame. And just, you know, the few moments of, of exciting breaks when they can get it before they're being pulled in to, to come perform as, uh, you know, monkeys for you and how well they do it anyhow. Yeah, the big uh, groundbreaking number in this movie is uh, the Can't Buy Me Love scene where they break out of the studio, break out of their cage for for a few moments and just have this very MTV style music video, this, you know, quick cuts and the, the speed of the, of the film, it, it slows down, it speeds up and it's all, it's not uh, cutting any kind of narrative sequence. It's all just, you know, a bunch of random shots of them goofing around in, in this garden and, um, and just really exciting. And you really like get this sense of freedom from, from this, from the celebrated moment of, of them, them getting out and just, you don't even see him singing this song. The song's playing while they're they're goofing around in uh, in the garden. Yeah, and this is one of the. I mean, this is a movie that has been everyone points to as saying that it, it invented music videos, which is you know not entirely. It didn't do it in a void, obviously. I mean, there were there these things existed uh, to some degree, uh, like Scopey Tones, which I was <laughs> talking to Bart about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, which are wonderful, but those weren't uh, really that well-known. I mean, I think that the, what really made this the, something that people point to as as inventing music videos or, or inventing a style of, of filmmaking is just that it, it was so popular. Uh, not that it really invented it, but that it was it, it perfected it or that it brought uh, a bunch of concepts all together at once in the same hour and a half here. For the record, that scene when they're in the with the helicopter, uh, you know, shooting them in the field, John actually isn't even uh, in all of the faraway shots. Uh, that's not actually John. It was a stand-in because he had to go to a, a literary luncheon for his book in his own right, which came out uh, the year that they were shooting. You can actually tell because he has a hat that it comes down over his face. So you can't really see who he is until the scenes where he's actually there. He shot some of it and then they, they had a stand in for okay. the rest of it. Because, yeah, I can picture each one of them jumping through the air in slow motion. And that's yeah, def- no, definitely no, John he, Lennon. He, he was there for part of it. But in the, in the scenes that are further away, uh, you can see that the hat's pulled down a little, a little too low. <laughs> Every one of them shines in this movie individually. Like, there's not one of them that you can't say doesn't get a real star moment. It's, yeah, I mean, it's really just luck that this movie came together and became this perfect object of cinema. Got the the right music, the right stars, the right director who brought the the right attitude to the the filmmaking, the, the right screenwriter who could write all these 
really witty, absurdist non sequiturs uh, that that sound just right in the Beatles' mouths. It's you know just everything, and I don't think anyone could have possibly set out to make a movie that would work out as as perfectly as this movie does, and that would have nearly as much influence. I mean, this was made the same year that the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, right? So they just took off in America, and this movie was kind of made in response to that, so that they could like quickly follow up their stardom in, in America with some with some material, with an album and, and something for, for the kids to watch. So it was just kind of cranked out and opportunistic in a way, but it just ended up being this indelible piece of cinema. Well, I know my mother, you know, saw this in theaters when she was young, and uh, she claimed that, you know, even in the theater, everyone was screaming. <laughs> you couldn't watch the movie. I mean, like, because it, it just even the sight of them on, on the screen, it drove everyone nuts. Um, and, and most of this movie, by the way, even though it feels very off the cuff, it was definitely scripted. But I think having also that mixture of the Beatles themselves, who are, are amateur actors here, yeah, it just it just lines up perfectly, and everyone gets their own little one-off, except for Paul. Funny enough, and I I recently just read a rumor about why that is because you know like John gets the moment in the hallway where the woman there's this joke essentially that she says, "Oh, aren't you aren't you him?" And he says, "Oh, I'm nice of you to notice." And then it and then it comes around where she says, "No, you don't look like him at all," you know, and then walks away. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have George, who mistakenly walks into this sort of modeling agency, which is my favorite. Uh, That's part. great. <laughs> he, uh, adds the word "grotty" into the lexicon. Right, I love mm. I love that guy. The, the we'll give him whatever that drink it is they drink, a Coca Rama, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> Or it's like, oh, they're, they're fab and all the other pimply hyperboles. Also, in, in a perfect example of the sort of, uh, you know, finger, middle finger that the Beatles were throwing to anyone trying to bottle them, uh, even within this this movie, that was, again, another attempt to try and figure out what made these guys so attractive that everyone apparently over the age of uh, 30 couldn't seem to understand. And then Ringo, of course, has he has the, the one sort of a semi-dramatic and real sort of cinema verite uh, style where he, he decides after being... Um, influenced by the, the the real mixer, Paul's uh, clean old grandfather, uh, that he was just going to go off on his own and live his life and uh, parade a- around a little bit. Taking pictures. Yeah, he, he like, you know, meets like a snot-nosed kid on the banks of the Thames and gets in trouble with the law a little bit. Yeah, but then, but Paul's sequence got cut out. They actually shot it and then it they cut it and it disappeared and there's not even footage of it, which... I don't understand why that would happen for a Beatles movie, especially like, you know, you, you wouldn't even keep this. But I, I read a rumor recently that was essentially that Paul couldn't stop looking down the dress of the, the girl <laughs> <laughs> in the scene and they had to cut it. And that to me makes actually a lot of sense of why this footage would no longer exist because there's photos of it, but there's no there's no footage. That's funny. His grandfather, by the way, which is something I never, of course, knew as a, an American who <laughs> who was not born during the time. But his grandfather, the, the reoccurring joke of him being very clean, which was which was funny to me anyhow, without even knowing the reason for it, was that uh, Wilfred Bramble, who is the actor that played him, was uh, well known to British audiences as a uh, steptoe and son. And the, the joke on that was that he was he was always referred to as a dirty old man. Uh, so that's why that's why he's very clean. Makes it but... less funny knowing knowing the origin. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> yeah, and, and this movie is it's definitely 
part of the British New Wave that was happening at this time. You know, these filmmakers, um, Richard Lester is actually American, but working in Britain, and Tony Richardson, and uh, Carol Reese, and uh, Lindsay Anderson were making these low-budget uh, movies set in the north of England about these working-class characters, and, the, you know, all about uh, realism and just showing the side of uh, England, of English society that you never really got to see in the movies, you know, these, you know, based on the, the sort of angry young man literary movement that was, that was happening, you know, just previous to this, and, uh, and they became, you know, they were popular, for for a brief period, they were actually making quite a bit of money. The the British New Wave didn't last that long, but you know, sort of inspired by the French New Wave, but sort of its own thing. But it's you know more about this this attitude that you know just being dissatisfied with with working class life and making blue collar folk the you know the center of these movies was just not something that was seen in in much of British cinema, and it's you know sort of the the origins of this whole you know, swinging London thing that happened where breaking down of, of social classes. It's, you know, the sort of acknowledging, and the Beatles really were, were a huge part of it. It was just showing that that these uh, working class kids are just, uh, you know, can be the focus of everybody's attention. You know, it actually became hip to, to be lower class. And that's where all the, the excitement and activity was in, in London and you know, during the swinging 60s. So Hard Day's Night really fits into this whole sort of class rebellion attitude that was uh, that was happening I think a key line in this movie is is on the train towards the beginning, where the uh, the upper class gentleman is ruining the fact that these kids, the the Beatles, are uh, have sort of taken over the train. And if he, if he tells them they should shut the window, they should shut the window because this is his train. And uh, and he says, "I fought the war for your sort." And Ringo rejoins, uh, I, "I bet you're sorry you won." And that's that's <laughs> one of, one of my one of my favorite moments in the movie, and I think that it's really kind of a key to the to the whole attitude we've been talking about this generation gap that happens in all of these 60s movies and just, you know, talking about musicals today is that's really where what was happening is the the adults and the kids were just, you know, two very separate audiences and the kids were the ones who were going to the movies. So that was why everything, you know, the studios died and everything was sort of geared towards kids and, and uh, you know, just was it was huge, like... You know, break in traditions during the '60s, and and Hard Day's Night is a is a perfect example of that. In this movie, I mean, you know, as we said, like uh, as far as the filmmaking goes, the editing is lightning fast. There's a joke a minute. Also, there's really mm. not a lull in the entire film, uh, and there's nothing theatrical about it. Everything's cinematic. I mean, it gets surreal uh, in the first ten minutes with this guy, this uh, you know upper class twit in the in the car with them, and and. Uh, Suddenly they're they're they walk out and they're outside of the train running with the train and Mister, can we have our ball back? You know, like <laughs> immediately it gets surreal and, and and bizarre. They even also the scenes where they're on stage, uh, you know, when when they're singing, it's it's edited like a film would be edited. There's no moment even when they're on that stage, you get to see uh, different angles on the stage. You get to see the 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 audience. You get to see the the cameras shooting them. Uh, it really tries to to sort of cut together documentary style, and mm-hmm. and then also those that like Benny Hill sequence with all the cops chasing after them. Yeah, the Keystone Cops, which is brought back for uh, I was going to mention a uh, a Hard Day's Night knockoff that came out quickly after a Hard Day's Night in, in 1964 called Ferry Cross the Mercy. It was the Jerry and the Pacemakers, another another Liverpool band. Yeah, also managed by Brian Epstein. 
it's clearly just trying to capitalize on the whole Hard Day's Night thing. It's even got the same cinematographer, Gilbert Taylor, who also shot like Doctor Strangelove and Repulsion and a little movie called Star Wars. But it's just... Um, the film quality is very similar, um, but you can see that just you need you need the charisma of the Beatles and the and the talent and vision of, of Richard Lester and his comic sensibility. Uh, I mean, just the problem with this movie is it's just not funny. During the pacemakers, you know, they have some tunes. They're not bad. You know, it's sort of typical British invasion type stuff, but you know, it's not engaging because there's no. I, I mean, my main complaint is it just is not funny. The gags are humorless, and it's just a, a, a silly story about Jerry and the Pacemakers getting a, a, a record contract because they won a, 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 a talent show. And uh, not... Uh, <laughs> That's it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It, it sort of shows Jerry Marsden and, and uh, you know, living in his mother's house. You know, they, they all work in a... Or they actually, they're all, uh, they're all art school students. So you get some, some musical sequences in an art school... There's just a lot of wackiness in the style of Hard Day's Night, but with none of the magic. It may be a joke, but it's his nose. <laughs> the poor little head trembling under the weight of it. The last movie I wanted to um, to mention, which is worth seeking out, uh, pretty incredible, it's The Tammy Show, which was actually shot on high-definition video, like with TV cameras, but you know, with a technology that was intended to be transferred onto 35 millimeter film and shown in, uh, in theater. So it's, it's sort of, it's just this all-star show, you know, with, with all the big, a lot of the big bands from 1964. You've got the Beach Boys, Chuck Berry, Jan and Dean, Leslie Gore, who was actually the, on the top of the charts at the time when this came out, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, The Supremes. James Brown is, has the most incredible performance that that you will ever see on film he, he he does several songs and he does this whole falling down on the ground and and, uh, and his his manager comes out to lift him off the ground puts his cape on and he throws the cape off and it's just really theatrical performance and and his his moves are incredible so for for the james brown performance alone you should seek out the tammy show but it's just a really incredible snapshot of the music scene at this time, Rolling Stones show up at the end and do a bunch of blues covers, and and they're uh, a lot of fun to watch. Um, I mean, it's really it's the first concert film, so I think it's pretty notable for that reason. Or at least first concert film of the rock and roll era. Like you got all all these let's put on a show type things where there's this you know bare minimum of a plot, actors acting. You know, in roles to to tie together these just an excuse for a bunch of bands to get together and play on film, but this is the only one where it's you know it's nothing but just band after band after band. See now we could definitely do a whole episode on just concert films. There's some there's some good ones in the '60s. Yeah, I mean, in Hard Day's Night too, it's it ends with a mini Beatles concert. There, I, I think there's just this. They realize that the, you know the power of rock and roll at this point is you don't need an excuse. You know, people just will pay to show up and, and watch their favorite bands play, and, they, and you don't need anything more than that, really. I pulled this quote from a uh, New Yorker critic, uh, Brendan Gill, 
from when the movie came out because it, it made me laugh. And I feel like it also kind of sums up Hard Day's Night. But he wrote, quote, though I don't pretend to understand what makes these four rather odd looking boys so fascinating mm-hmm. to so many scores of millions of people, I admit that I feel a certain mindless joy stealing over me as they caper about uttering sounds. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it, but that honestly, like if nothing else, doesn't that go to show just how freaking great the Beatles were? <laughs> I feel like there probably was this grudging admiration for the Beatles on the part of the previous generation, though. They're so raw. They're so real. There, There is no pretense. And that's what's so great about them. Even when they're doing these silly quips, it's always like to, to undercut uh, something else, you know, like the, oh, what, what do you call that hairstyle of yours? Oh, I call it Arthur. You know, like, <laughs> like who, like who's going to get angry at that response, you know, but it's also like pointing out how stupid the question is. Who cares? Like, just move on. Like, we're here to play rock and roll. Like, it's, it's great. I also want to point out the real star of all of these movies that we've watched this week, kind of tie them all together. Tony Basil, who's a background dancer in four of, of these movies we've mentioned. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. She and... Terry Garr, actually, are both background dancers in Tammy's show. But she was, you know, famous for her 80s hit, Oh Mickey, you know, that cheerleader video. But she was, you know, doing a lot of choreography for a lot of, you know, David Bowie and and Tina Turner and people through the 70s. But uh, she's she's the girl in the red dress during the uh, What I Say song in Viva Las Vegas. And she's one of the chorus girls in... uh, Robin and the Seven Hoods, and there's actually a special feature on the DVD for that movie that's basically, you know, Tony Basil is the like the centerpiece of that that behind the scenes thing. And in Pajama Party, she's one of the lead dancers in a, in a dancing sequence on the beach in that. And uh, so I just wanted to point that out. That's great. But, no, uh, I like that. Yeah, let's let's hear it for the background dancers because she's fabulous, and they seem to know that they had somebody special on their hands because she. You know, if you're looking for her, she stands out from everybody else because she's really got the moves. That's cool. So that's 64. I mean, what a year. I can't even imagine. And then, and that's just the, you know, of big musicals uh, that came out that we chose. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, it's it's just wild. And, and it's so interesting, too. This happens, like, right at the in the middle. You know, ah, it's not 65, but, you know, right in the middle of, of this decade. And, and you can already see just the the two ends of the spectrum here and the two, the two generations. I forgot even to mention in the, the Frankie and Annette movie, they, they have a dig at Sinatra. <laughs> so you can really start to, to see, uh, you know, how the crowds are splitting here. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was fascinating. This was great. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. And just to have three like movies that represent where I was at at, at various points in my life like eight-year-old Bart Mary Poppins was his favorite movie 18-year-old Bart Hard Day's Night absolute favorite movie 28-year-old Bart Umbrellas of Cherbourg was he was you know he was all about that and it's just I don't know what it was about this year but a bunch of really special stuff came out oh what was our favorite song in Hard Day's Night I, I mean I've always been fond of i should have known better i guess and it gets played twice but i like the uh the earlier sequence where they're in the cage and playing cards and it sort of turns into them playing instruments and then back into them playing cards i always liked uh, i like uh, if i fell and you see uh john making faces at ringo like it starts off with ringo i was always sulking again and john kind of starts the song up uh, kind of just to tease him into a better mood it's fun it's like a good comedy bit and then they and then they end up singing the song pretty straight 
But I think that's also the one where George leans on an amplifier that uh, falls. (laughs) (laughs) That is clearly a mistake that they just kept in because it was pretty funny anyhow. Yeah, but it's a Beatles, so every song is great. Who's your favorite Beatle? I... I, I think I accepted long ago that, uh, that John is my favorite Beatle. See, that's why we get along. Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema60Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.